Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. So now I want to introduce somebody who's very special. Um, first, let me introduce, not, not, this doesn't mean you're not special, but <laughs> you were here at the last program, so but I do want to reintroduce you. Actually, both people are very special to me. There's Ramsha Azmat, for those of you who just may be joining us and didn't hear about her in the first program. Uh, Ramsha is a graduate of Rush University. Uh, she's been with us now for about six months, mm -hmm. and she has passed her ABCP certification. So she is a full-fledged certified clinical perfusionist, and I want to congratulate her on an incredible job well done. And she is an exceptional clinician, very well respected in the operating room, very well liked, um, and uh, we couldn't be happier. I'm so privileged that you're here with us. Thank you. And an excellent job on PerpWeb 68 and doing the uh, DO2 lecture. It was very, very well done. Thank you. Immediately to Ramsha's right is Bill Watson. Bill Watson is a perfusionist who graduated from the Texas Heart Institute. Uh, back in 1986, 85, 80, 85 you're close. I was close, 85, sorry. That's and right. uh, Bill has worked in the perfusion industry clinically and also in business. I do want to say that Bill is one of the few last surviving uh, perfusionists who actually had the opportunity to work with Dr. Cooley on a routine basis when Dr. Cooley was actually working every single day and doing lots and lots of cases and lots and lots of interesting experience. Bill, during his career, very long career now, has uh, transitioned into doing a or transitioned into doing a tremendous amount of business work. Um, he is uh, a CEO of Watson Advisors, who advises Fortune 500 companies, very large organizations on an international level, and consults with them on a variety of things, including acquisitions, sales, uh, marketing uh, cap uh, uh, opportunities, and the like. Uh, he has spent a lot of time in the perfusion industry at a very high level as well, and actually, I know Bill. Bill was just telling a story about me flying him across the island of Puerto Rico, going from Ponce to San Juan. And he's sort of made this story. He's, he's really elaborated. He's, he's exaggerated the story just slightly. Um, but I assure you, I was not going to fly into that mountain. Um, it only looked that way. But uh, we can talk about that at a later date. <laughs> but uh, Bill is somebody whom I have known for a uh, very long time. He uh, was known to be an exquisite uh, clinician uh, in his days in perfusion. He's still in perfusion. He's working at one of uh, our hospitals, helping us and contributing to our team in a very meaningful way. He's somebody who I truly respect. He knows and understands industry extremely well, way better than I'm ever going to completely understand it. And uh, I am looking forward to a very long and uh, rewarding relationship with Bill uh, and HET as we move forward in each other's lives and for the entire group uh, that encompasses HET. So Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. And I think we're gonna have a really good uh, session today. You know, 
Joe, I, I, um, I appreciate the opportunity. We've known each other for, for a significantly long time. And we've both been in different roles over that period of time. Um, but as I thought through and made the decision to come back to a clinical role, uh, it was relatively easy for me to decide who I wanted to associate myself with. Um, I'm, I'm pleased and I'm honored to be part of this team. Um, and I have every expectation, as I hope you do, um, that I'm going to make a significant contribution. Um, our past is um, its something that is literally irreplaceable. Yes, this is true. The, this the, is very true. The, the, the period of time that... Um, period of time that you were in the States, the period of time that you were in Puerto Rico, the period of time that many of your viewers may not be completely aware of was, was really unique. And I don't mean unique in a negative way. I mean unique in a very special way. And what you were able to accomplish in Puerto Rico, which for those of you who, who may not be aware, Puerto Rico is a challenging market. And when you get outside of San Juan and you go to the opposite side of the island, i.e. Ponce, and you're a standalone perfusionist, there's no concept of I'm going to call Sally or Johnny or Billy or, or whomever to come in and help me, but yet I'm going to be completely responsible and own this. You, you are did, alone. You did own it. And having the privilege at that point in time and the role that I currently served at that point in time to deal with administration, to deal with the surgeons, to talk with your peers, not in perfusion, your peers that supported you and the patients in the operating room was a tremendous attribute to the strength and the integrity and the desire that you bring to our profession. So without sounding like I am um, uh, overindulging. No, please you. go on. Go, no, go. no, clearly, clearly you want me to go you on. But, but no, 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 I'm going to stop there. My, my point is really simple, is that we've known each other a long time. I know, as I believe you know me, your strengths and your weaknesses. I think you know my strengths and my weaknesses. And I think collectively, collectively with the group that you've assembled together, I think we're going to be incredibly, incredibly strong and make an impact on this city that um, this city being Houston and other markets that other groups might, might um, be challenged to achieve. Well, thank and, you. And I'm well, proud of it. Well, let me tell you something, Bill, in all seriousness, you have already contributed uh, to, uh, to this organization. And I have known you a long time, and the one thing that I will say, and I say this to anybody, it doesn't matter who you are, whether it be Ramshaw, whether it be Bill Watson, whether it be Tammy Sparacino, it doesn't make any difference to me. All I really ask for is integrity. I've known you long enough to know you have integrity, Ramsha, I've known now long enough to know she has integrity. And every member of HET, that is the one thing 
that I absolutely have to have in order to associate myself with somebody, and that is integrity. And uh, I'm most proud of that, to be frank with you. That's exactly what uh, I feel like I do. I'm not, I'm very rarely wrong. <laughs> but when I am. No, I'm sorry. Should we expand the camera for just a moment? But, but I, I don't know. But when I am, I, I will admit it, okay? It's rare, okay? So with that said, let's do this. I'm going to give a very, did you think that was funny? Did you think that was funny? She it's kicked true. me under the table it's and no said, doubt. it's incredibly funny. Yes, no, no doubt. So, okay. So I've got a, I've got a fun talk. Uh, this is not going to be one of those talks that, uh, that, that, that really require, you don't have to take notes. It's just a fun talk. Talking about the future of perfusion and advancements in technology. And it's really designed to provide a uh, segue into the eighth actual main topic, which is the economy of perfusion. Because the economy of perfusion, for as simple as it seems, is, ex is exceedingly complex. And we're hoping that we can stimulate some very provocative thoughts and also uh, uh, open the sort of a curtain to a hidden world that you might not even think about because there's this old saying, out of sight, out of mind. And it's very true. And perfusionists tend to, for whatever reason, lurk in the shadows of the hospital because nobody knows who the heck we are or what we actually do. Yeah. Well, you're the perfusionist. But nobody knows what that really means. And it can be both a blessing and it can be a curse depending on who it is you're talking to and what the issue that they have or their particular agenda may be. So let's go forward with the slides. The future of perfusion, advancements in technology. So the, before we even get started, I want to go over some things that I just find fun. So if you look in the top left corner, that is Forrest Dodrell. And that contraption that you see that guy working with is the Dodrell pump. And that's actually considered to be the first mechanical device, device excuse me, used for open heart surgery. Now, the younger man that you see, and I'll highlight him here, this fella right here, that person is Calvin Hughes. Calvin Hughes was working for General Motors. And this pump that you see here actually looks like a car motor of its day. Not said so this is also a GM engineer. But Calvin Hughes is arguably the very first perfusionist that ever did a case, even though he's not credited with it. And he went to medical school. Everyone was certain that he was going to be a heart surgeon. But Calvin Hughes became a psychiatrist. Clearly, there was a message there that some of us have not yet gotten. So, General Motors, Dr. Dodrell, the Dodrell pump, and I'll actually show you a video of it working, looks just like a car motor. Now, over to the right, that is William Thornton Mustard. Now, this guy is really interesting. He's from Canada. He graduated from high school when he was 15 years old. He 
was too young to make application to the university, so he stayed in high school for an additional year. His brother preceded him into medical school, but Dr. Uh, Mustard wanted to actually be in forestry. And his brother convinced him to go to medical school instead. Well, while he was on, in medical school, his parents uh, were traveling from, this is in 1939, they were traveling back from the United Kingdom to Canada on the USS Athenia. And Germany had declared war on Britain. And the Athenia is a, was a passenger ship. And Germany said any passenger ships that they feel could be transporting troops or any supplies are fair game, and they torpedoed the Athenia. Dr. Mustard's mother survived. His father, unfortunately, drowned and died. Dr. Mustard still completed his medical school training. Dr. Mustard worked as a general practitioner in order to help support his brother, who had lost his source of income, which was his father, to get support to get through school. So he essentially helped to pay for his brother's medical school training. Then he went into the military himself. In the military, he saved a patient with a severed femoral artery, a captain, I can't remember his name anymore, and he put a glass tube in the femoral artery until it could be adequately bypassed with a vein graft, saving the captain's life. And this is what he, not, not only that, but he started out wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon. And what he did was figured out how to transplant the psoas muscles in order to help polio victims be able to walk. So he has an orthopedic surgery named after him, then decides he likes heart surgery. Now, all of this other stuff still happened to him, still lost, his, lost one of his parents in a, in a sinking during a war, saves a guy's life with a glass tube, ties it, it just sticks it in the lumen and ties it off on each end to keep the leg alive, saves the guy's life and leg, and then on top of it, figures out the mustard procedure. A procedure for transposition of the great arteries, right? Yeah. You remember that. So yeah, it used to be the they would just do a septostomy, just open the septum up, and you'd mix it, and they would basically get mixed blood going to both the PA and the systemically and live with that. But the outcomes were sort of poor. Um, and then he figured out how to baffle it so that you could make the LV the RV and the RV the LV, and that was the mustard procedure in the early days of, of solving this problem for transposition of the great vessels. But his contraption, this is his contraption. And what they did was they put monkey lungs in this glass flask. And they pumped the patient's blood through the monkey lungs to oxygenate it and ventilate it. And then pumped it to the patient. So this served as the oxygenator. Then you have this guy down here with the largest headlight known to man, Walt Lillehigh. Dr. Lillehigh's idea was to take the patient's, this case, father, cannulate his femoral artery, 
perfuse the baby's aorta and drain the baby's venous blood via a pump back into the father's venous system to allow the father to act as both the reservoir and the oxygen pump oxygen or the oxygenator at least but certainly the arterial pump because it was their femoral arterial pressure you're looking stunned ramsha yeah, you are looking stunned okay so what's well, a it's a it's a pretty remarkable story yeah it, it, and for for people that do, do not know the history of perfusion and or do not know the early days of perfusion i think they read about this or hear about this and they think that didn't happen this did happen. No, it, it happened. And, and a number of other amazing things. But this in and of itself is remarkable. Yes. Yeah, this, is, this is, this is, this is, uh, they say that these people, these guys were courageous. They say that a lot. Oh, that surgeon was so courageous. Like, no, no, no. The patients were courageous. Yeah. Okay. Because it, you know, they the surgeons got to go home and write yeah. books and get awards. The patients, they're the courageous ones. But anyway, with that said, if can you imagine sitting in the lounge, the perfusion lounge, doctor's lounge, nurse's lounge, whatever lounge you want to pick? And, and that, by the way, before I say this. Dr. Lilyhai, for as intense as he looks, he's the scariest looking surgeon I've ever seen in this picture. But this guy loved to drink and party and had a lot of fun. He was he was known to be a lot of fun. Dr. Dodrell, as you could well imagine, with a name like Forrest, not was so probably not so much fun. Not so much fun. <laughs> not so much fun. And Dr. Dr. Mustard, though. An incredibly, incredibly nice person and 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 a jokester was yeah, he, he a little more sedate lifestyle than Dr. Lily High. That's all I can say. But with that said, could you imagine being in the lounge and Dr. Mustard walks in and says, uh, Bill Ramsha, I think what we're gonna do is put monkey lungs in a glass flask and pump through it to oxygenate it and ventilate it and then pump it back into the patient. I think everyone's would about look like this. Yeah. What you like, talking about, what you talking about, Willis? Are you are you serious? But he did it. Here is the 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 dodrill pump in actual operation. And you can see the blood, you can see the making little tweaks to the pressure. And if you look at it, it looks like a car engine with with pistons. Yeah, it's exactly right. And then you have obviously the one that we all really know about, mm-hmm. and that is the <laughs> IBM Gibbon Two. I say IBM because IBM was involved with it. Now that roller pump on the left was actually made by DeBakey. The original is in the uh, Smithsonian, and he made that pump as a medical student at Tulane University uh, under uh, Alton Ochsner. And it was for transfusions, and it had a stroke volume and a counter, and you would turn it from the donor to the recipient and would know how much volume 
you took out of one and gave to the other. And that is the predecessor. In fact, the roller pumps we use today are still known as DeBakey roller pumps. And there were seven of them on this big contraption that you see on the right, the, uh, the Gibbon IBM Heart Lung Machine Model 2. And this is still on display at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, and it was a quite a sophisticated device. In fact, it had a pH monitoring system. It had pressure monitoring systems. And for those of you that are geeky, it had nitrogen bottles at the very bottom that were always easing out nitrogen to reduce explosion risk. True story. And if you look at an IBM punch card machine circa 1950, look at how similar it looks. So industry's involvement and their influence can be seen in these early designs, whether it be a car motor or whether it be a business machine. But the, the, the whoever was the collaborative industry, you could see how they wanted it to look like what they were used to. And so uh, I think the design similarities are quite striking and very interesting. But here we go, 1953, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. John Gibbon, his wife Mary Gibbon, there was 18-year-old ASD repair in those days. This was big ASD. And those patients didn't do that well, but you can see they used the pump on this patient. Her name was Cecilia Bolkovac, I believe is how you say her last name, um, or Bavilac, Bavilac maybe. I don't remember exactly. Cecilia was her first name. And you see Mary Gibbon there running the pump. What's interesting about Dr. Gibbon, John Gibbon, is that he worked his whole life to figure this out. Okay, this was his true, this was the driving force of his existence. And what a lot of people don't know is his first case died. Mm -hmm. His second case died. died. His third case, Cecilia, lived. His fourth case died. He never did another case. He turned the entire project over to his colleagues, and he was done. Dr. Gibbon did four cases with his pump with a 75% mortality or 25% survival, however you want to look at it. It's an interesting fact, I thought. Yeah, it is. So here it is, four total cases, three deaths, never did another case. Uh, we kind of went through that. Yeah, Cecilia Bavilek, that's how you say it. It's right there. She actually talked at AMSEC's 50th uh, anniversary um, uh, meeting. And uh, she gave, were you there? Did I you was. go? You were there? I very was interesting. In the back of the room, but I was there. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, so what, you know, are you looking for? Technology and perfusionists. Well, they look for industrious people. And they were the ones that were selected to learn how to run this pump. In 1971, the first formal perfusion training center was established at Texas Heart Institute. And Charlie Reed, of course, was the, <clears throat> uh, is everything okay? Yes. Everything said was the uh, 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 director, and between 1973 and 1975, the first professional society for perfusionists, and Charlie Reed was the president. And then in 1975, the newly formed ABCP was, of course, again established by and uh, was chaired by 
the indemnable Charlie Reed. I met Charlie Reed in 1978. Okay. And um, I guess I could tell this story. How old are you? You tell your story, and then can I share mine? Yes, I'll tell you my story. Fantastic. I can't wait to hear yours. I'll tell the story. Okay. So it was 1978. And I was going to the second THI. I was a student at the second THI, which was the Tucson Heart Institute versus the Texas Heart Institute, correct. right? That's THI correct. was the Texas Heart mm-hmm. Institute. That is and so correct. And Billy Applegate, who was my instructor, mm-hmm. was much in the, much like Dr. Mustard. Okay. He was, he was fun and funny and great teacher, incredible human being, but a little bit of a teetotaler. Charlie, go ahead. No, 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 no. You're doing, you're doing a great job. Yeah. You go right ahead. Charlie was the antithesis of Billy. That's why they liked each other so much. They were total opposites. But in order for the school I was currently going to, to be accredited by the ABCP, Charlie had to do a site visit and visit with the student. In fact, there was only one student. It was one student, one student per two years, the school I went to. That was it. And he uh, told Billy, he says, you know, I really want to spend time with Joe, you know, uh, alone. And so I think I'm going to invite him to, uh, to dinner. Now, Charlie smoked. Charlie smoked a lot. Back in those days, you could smoke in the ante room of the operating room. So we had an operating room, we had the ante room, there was an ice machine and things like that. We'd eat sandwiches in there, whatever, and you could smoke in there. Charlie would smoke in there. So I was like, oh my God, you know, this guy's got me, this guy's I gotta go out with this guy. I don't know what to even think or say or do anything. I was a kid. I was like, just a kid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he said, okay, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm going to rent a car, and I'll pick you up. Where do I need to pick you up from? I said, just pick me up from the hospital, sir. That's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll be right here, you know. So he picks me up, and I'm like, I had brought something to wear, the whole nine yards. So he picks me up, and he says, son, I want to see some, I can't say the word, I want to see some cha-chas. And I'm like, sir? He goes, do you know where the best club is in town? Because I got some dollars. And I was like, you don't want to go to dinner? He goes, "Ah, they might serve some food there, but I think we need to go, (laughs) so let's go. So we went to the Cabaret Club. And the Cabaret Club, I was like, O-M-G. He never asked me one question about perfusion, nothing. He saw it all when he came into the case. And I was like so scared, didn't know what to do, didn't even know, like I was just like, whatever. We leave, and he says, now, son, we keep this between us, right? Okay? Said, yes, yes, sir. He says, okay, where would we go to dinner? I, I, I don't know. I made something up. And he goes, is it good? I said, it's, it's, it's what I can afford. He goes, no, someplace better than that. So I, like, so I picked <laughs> right? something else, and he goes, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, that's where we went to dinner. Okay, what'd you have? I mean, he had it all down, 
He's smoking in my car. He's, he's, his car, he's smoking. I mean, it's smoke blowing everywhere. Anyway, he drops me back off at the hospital. I go home. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this just happened. But I had to be back the next day to do a case. He showed up. He looked great. He looked great. That was in 1978. You want the long version or the short version? Short. Short. <laughs> 1983. Which accept- is only five years from then. I got accepted into perfusion school. I lived with a gentleman named Steve Goodson, who, if Steve watches this, I love you and I miss you. We lived across the street from Charlie Reed. So about a year into the program, it was a two-year program at the time, Charlie came over to the, to the house, knocked on the door, and said, um, I need you to clean out my garage. I said, sure, happy to. Not really happy to, but happy to. Happy to. Went over and cleaned out the garage. At the time, Charlie in the back of his house had an enormous greenhouse. He did orchids. His orchids were exquisite. He had seedlings from literally all over the world. Yeah, he went everywhere. it It was unbelievable. So about four hours into cleaning out his garage. And I get down to the last stack, and I find this, and if you've ever been to New York, which I frequent a lot, you know, you've got the guy that's, or the, or, or the young lady that might be on the street corner that has a little stand that you put your foot up on and she shined your shoe, right? He had one of those in his garage. So I come across this, and... I went over and I said, Mr. Reed, you know, do you want that? Because we were making two piles, right? The trash pile, the save pile. I said, where would you like this to be? He said, neither pile. He said, I think you need to save it because you're never going to be a perfusionist. No. Ever. So once you drop that back at Steve Goodson's house across the street, where you live and have done all this work, take that with you because you're going to need something to make a living. That is wrong. That's horrible. Yeah, that's extremely Could wrong. Could go way, way, way beyond. But my point is, is that notwithstanding how devastating that was at that point in time, I was 19 years old. Notwithstanding how devastating that was, Think what you want about Charlie. Everybody out there has an opinion. Right? Well, not anymore. They've, not well, very many no, people even know the, who he the, is. But those yeah. people that have read, you know, Reed and Clark, and then they read the second version, and this, that, and the other. Anybody that knows the history, certainly if you can go all the way back to Gibbon, you can certainly understand who Charlie Reed was. So my point is, is that notwithstanding the fact that he did some things that were seedy, seedy, that were really challenging, yeah. right? The reality is he took this profession from a place where significant, and I won't name their names, anesthesiologists at Texas Heart Institute and St. Luke's and residents, fellows, and attendings, St. Luke's and TCH, considered us to be 
pump tanks. Yep. And he said, got to tell you, not so much. Not really pump tanks. Pump tech, his words, could be done by a monkey. These people are not pump techs. These people have intellect. They have an understanding of physiology, anatomy, pharmacology. And you know what? If you treat them right and they feel confident in what they're doing, they're going to make a contribution to the outcome. The outcome, which think about that terminology over the next 40 years that you and I have both lived through. They're going to have an outcome on the performance of this particular patient. But then he turns around and does that to you, which is completely counter to it's that. The anti- and it's the antithesis of that. It doesn't make that. any damn sense doesn't whatsoever. Make any, no, it doesn't. You, but it makes but sense. Charlie, but it makes sense compared to, think about your night to dinner with him. It wasn't about going to dinner. No. It was not about going to dinner. It was about he, partying. Not only partying. He wanted to spend a night with someone and you may believe this or not, and if you don't, that's fine. You, I know you'll tell me. We know each other very well. But the reality is he wanted to see who you were. He wanted to see where you would go, what you would do, what you would share. And my guess is... First time I've shared the story. Right here, right? The first time I shared the story, right he's here. dead. He's, he's, he's dead. He's yeah. long dead. But yes. he goes to war with McGovern about whose patient it is. You probably don't know this story. Charlie went to war with the Society of Thoracic Surgeons because he wanted perfusionists to have an equal say in whether or not a case was done. So have equal standing in the care of the patient as the surgeon. All all diagnostic responsibility yes not to interrupt right yes equal diagnostic input yes and at the time and mcgovern that was, was like heresy. This is not gonna happen ever and he went to war and he lost they lost we he lost the war i think it was an ill-conceived battle to have big mistake on his part but he felt very strongly about it and he was quite an interesting character but he continued to smoke, drink to excess, and actually, I think he, well, Dr. Batia, who I think you met, you know, because you know Dr. Yeah. Batia, you may know Dr. Batia, helped repair his AAA rupture uh, in Arkansas, and uh, Charlie died not long Succumbing after that from yes. complications, from not necessarily that operation, but other things, smoking and drinking too much and womanizing too much. He was crazy. Um, but interestingly enough, the orchids didn't play into that. No, the orchids didn't play into that. So, but he was ex- he was incredible at growing orchids. Oh, so incredible qualities looked for: independence, fearlessness, great communicators, being very thick-skinned, mechanically inclined, intelligent, creative and industrious, innovative, durable, inquisitive, <clears throat> adaptable, interested. In other words, being curious, um, being a quick thinker, and Passing notes. Oh, yeah, you can use the restroom. Of course. Oh, I'm so it. appreciative yeah. of you, well, I didn't want of people you to think sharing that with well, our audience. I didn't think it about, well. So, thank you. Yeah, so please. Thank you, Joe. It's right I'm going to exit, magical and then I'm going to come back. Yeah, magical help. You just make sure you turn your mic off, because I've done that before, and the, the, the mic was still running. 
thank you so okay. much, Magic, because you're a godsend. They look for. I'll be back. Yes, sir. They use. They look for doers, quick thinkers. These are very important qualities that they look for. Um, so some contemporary realities: cabbage and valves are still the bread and butter of perfusion. Yeah. But when you look at the caseload, the volume of the cases that we do plummeted from our heyday, which we used to do 700,000 cases a year plus, okay, to under 200,000 cases a year now. Of course, stents have a lot to do with that, um, but it's amazing that that many cases, we did that many cases at one point in time in our history wow. in, the, in the mid to late 80s. Just amazing at how, how busy we used to be. I mean, Texas Heart would do five, six, six, seven thousand cases a year. Um, and now they do a, a fraction of that. Um, there are roughly four, now it's a little higher, 4,400 perfusionists, certified perfusionists in the U.S. At the time that I wrote this, uh, originally this, this, this uh, uh, presentation, it was the highest ever. This is going back a few years and it was 4135, but now it's 40, about 4,400. Um, we certainly are embattled with TAVR because now we'll do three TAVRs, four TAVRs, five yeah. TAVRs, and uh, those are patients. Of course, the question is, were they patients that were going to get open aortic valve or not? It's really hard to say. I don't know. Uh, we do about 25,000 SAVRs a year uh, in that range. Uh, but uh, certainly... You know, I st we still see aortic valves, yeah. um, but uh, but I think as TAVR gets more and more in the low risk uh, category, mid to low risk categories, uh, you'll probably see surgical aortic valve eventually disappear. I guess it may happen, but it's an exquisite operation, and uh, it's very uh, it's very very good. It's a great operation. I love mm -hmm. doing aortic valves. I hate uh, doing mitral valves, but I I, I think TAVR is uh is uh is is it's a good it's a good procedure and it seems to work pretty doggone well so it's hard to say that it's not a good choice mm -hmm. for a lot of people um but at the end of the day did we become our own worst enemy so here's the total number of certified perfusionists 4135 and you can see historically as it's grown from 2000 to 2015 and I think in terms of today's perfusionists, you know, we sort of have our head in the sand a lot of times. And progress is telling us not to worry that everything is going to be okay. And the perfusionist is saying, please tell me anything but the truth. And technology is that lion bearing down on that the ostrich with his head in the sand illustrating the perfusionist clearly going to get eaten so the message here is we cannot afford to keep our head in the sand when it comes to how our industry has to evolve with the way technology is advancing in the delivery of services for cardiac especially in major vascular procedures so how did it used to be? How it used to be? In 1979, I finished my training. And when I went to training, we had to learn how to harvest vein, uh, not EVH. It was open. 
<laughs> and there was no jump incisions either. It was just one big long cut. Um, we had to learn how to put radial arterial lines in. We first assisted. And in 1981, when I got out of training, I was working at my first job. It was pump, pump, pump. And we were doing intraortic balloon pumping, a lot of that. And in 1982, <coughs> excuse me, was the first time I ever heard about a cell saver. <coughs> excuse me. Okay. Had to cough there. I turned my mic off to do it. So... There used to be a lot of cases. We would cover balloon pumps. Of course, they didn't really have ECMO back then. It was more LVADs, but you know, they're, they're, it, it, ECMO sort of came out of, evolved out of it. We would do autotransfusion. Perfusionists would be the ones doing ATS, yeah. okay? And basically anything new. We would just do anything new. But somewhere around in the early 70s, there were about three or 400 centers. In 1990, it increased to about 850 centers. And today, there's 1,150 centers that do heart surgery. So you see that a lot of these places that did a lot of cases started doing fewer cases, not just from the pressure of stenting, but also from the... It, increase in the number of hospitals that do open heart surgery. Yeah. So if you only had one hospital in the woodlands doing open heart surgery, one hospital would be doing a thousand cases. Yeah. But because you have three hospitals in that one little corner mm -hmm. of the 242 and the 45, that is, they're now very competitive with each yeah. other trying to get cases to go to them and they all do good work yeah. where it really gets muddy the muddy the water's always been muddy is these these hospitals that do 40 or 50 cases a year is that really enough to be good at what you're doing the surgeon might go to multiple different hospitals and they have that experience the perfusionist probably goes to multiple different hospitals but are the nurses that are in the critical care unit really experienced enough doing hearts for when there's a problem that they can manage those patients well. So it's always been a debate of should a hospital be required to do a minimum number of cases before they're uh, allowed to either open or maintain a heart surgery account. And that's something that is, uh, is, has been uh, debated for a while. Your mic back on? Your mic back on? It's in your pocket. Your mic. My oh, they turned my it on over there? Is, is okay, your associate did. Okay. My so, associate did, yes. Yeah. So here you see, here, yes, here you see associate. that the number of hospitals, you see the number of hospitals going up and the number of procedures going down. down over time. And what's very interesting about that is if you look at the very low volume accounts, how mortality has gone up, and in the higher volume accounts, it goes down. And that's a very important thing to, uh, to look at. Actually, let me go back to this slide. I think I messed that up because I was looking at two different things. Um, so this is, yeah, so that's the percentage of, a, of, of hot national volume analysis. Proportion of patients given coronary artery bypass graft in very low volume and high volume accounts. So you can see 
there were, so here are the very high volume accounts <clears throat> here in the light gray, and they're actually decreasing while the low volume accounts are increasing. So I had that, that wrong. I want to make sure I clarify that. So basically, this is what you're seeing from the expansion of the number of cases. The very low volume accounts increased versus the accounts that were doing a lot of cases. So here we see the number of surgeons. And if you look at the red line, this line, red line, represents the baseline CT surgeons over time. And if you look at the blue line, that's with 150 trainees per year by the year 2030. If they had 150 trainees, they would be higher than what the baseline currently is. But if you did trainees of only 75 a year, look at what is already a shortage and how much that is exacerbated. So you don't even get close to having enough cardiac surgeons. And what is even more frightening about this is the purple line skyrocketing. This is population over the age of 65, and that is skyrocketing as we speak. So the number of surgeons able to do cardiac surgery is going down. We're in a shortage now, and it's going to only get worse, and they can't fill the slots for training. So they're at about 75 trainees or less per year, and we are going to be in a serious crunch should you need heart surgery if in 2030. Which probably only you and I will be in that category because I'm assuming that you will not. No, I she likely not. will not. This, uh, <laughs> I hope not. This is a uh, cartoon that I found. Actually, I borrowed it from Dr. Mack. We'll operate for food. I think we could just add we'll pump for food. And then I have this little cartoon here, an administrator's view of perfusion. I also stole this from Dr. Mack. You have the, the perfusion express bus with all of the dinosaurs on it and it is on the fast track to extinction. If we do not learn to evolve with the realities of cardiac surgery and technology and where it's all going. And I'll tell you this for a sense of, sense of security for everybody, anybody that's watching, this is a message to y'all. Um, when I started in this business, my very first job, um, I didn't have that horrible experience with Charlie Reed, thank God, but my first job, the administrator uh, came and told me, he said, Joe, there won't be perfusionists in another 10 years. And I said, geez, that's, that sounds horrible. Why do you think that? He said, oh, there's going to be advancements in technology, and you guys are just going to just, just fall by the wayside. We're not going to need perfusionists because he didn't like perfusionists. There's reasons for it, some valid, some, some not valid, but, you know, whatever the case may be. But 10 years later, I'm still working. And there was a nursing director of some sort told me, there won't be perfusionists in another 10 years. Okay. Now, that was now 30 years ago, right? So I've heard it before. The one thing perfusion does really well is somewhere along the way, somebody decides to stop the bus to extinction. And they start figuring out this is what we need to do. And that's not going to be me. And that's likely not going to be Bill. 
That's going to be you. So take the lessons. We have to evolve. You, it's not enough to be able to go on bypass and off bypass anymore. Used to be, it isn't anymore. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. And this is Dr. Mack talking about minimally invasive robotic surgery. Uh, he basically says it's the way of the future, and he's a very smart man, and I have no doubt he's 100% correct about that. <clears throat> you look at perfusion training, the number of programs over the course of years, you could see in the heyday somewhere between 1988 with rapid growth lasted to about 1999 and then eventually tailored off. We're seeing it increase again. Yeah which may be a good thing, maybe a bad thing. We can discuss all of that stuff. I don't want to get into a pool. We could have that in the discussion period. So let me keep going here and get this done. Um, this shows the number of people admitted to perfusion training, the graduation rate over time, and the employment rate over time. You can see in 2001, 97% of people that graduated got employed in, in 2005. It was quite low, only 887 now in 2013, or that 2013 is back to 97, and I would, I, would, I would reckon to guess, based on the current shortage, that we're probably at 100% right now, unless there's really something wrong with you, um, but, which could still be the case. But with that said, don't be surprised in another five years that you see employment rates drop below 90% again. Do not be surprised. Big industry, and we can talk about this a little bit later, you, you may want to make some notes of all these thoughts that I have, is going to do everything it can to flood the market with perfusionists. And if you cannot differentiate yourself, if you cannot stand out from a crowd, <clears throat> you'll just be one of the crowd. That's part of my reason for this talk. Um, age less than 25 uh, was very common, but you see here that age 26 to 35 over the years was also very big. And I think what you're seeing today compared to then is many more people in their mid-30s that are going into perfusion uh, than ever before, uh, probably even in the 40s, though that was very rare historically going back. It was a young man's game. Fairly mm -hmm. balanced male-female. Here are some people that I want to just uh, very quickly talk about, and only the ones that are starred, I think, I'll really address. Charlie Reed, we talked about briefly. Jerry Dobbs, probably one of the kindest souls I've ever known. And Jerry, I, he did a podcast. When the podcast first became known um, that you could do this, and he called me up and asked me if I would be on his podcast. It was one of the first ones to do, and it was via the telephone, and he was so incredibly proud of it. And uh, the, the website that he had was perfusioneducation.com. And the how I got the perfusioneducation.com website, and God bless Jerry, he died from cancer several years ago, and he was a, just a, a, a wonderful human being, Jerry gave me the site. Jerry said, I'm going to give you this website. I want you to do something good with it. That's all I ask you to do. I said, yes, sir, I will. I will do something good with that website. 
That is how I got ProfusionEducation.com. Anyway, and then there was F. Michael Burgess. <laughs> Mike Burgess, whoo, I'll tell you what, God, God rest his soul, man. It's a party wherever he is. Um, and then, of course, there's Mike Dunaway. We'll talk more about Mike Dunaway as we move forward. But uh, I disagree with, we could talk about it, disagree with so much. Mike Dunaway is who started Perfusion Services, Inc. Perfusion Services, Inc. became Psychor. Psychor became Baxter Perfusion. Baxter Perfusion became Edwards. Then it became Fresenius. Then it became something else, HCSG or something. Specialty care. Now it is specialty care. So from the very humble beginnings of of Perfusion Services Inc. out of Brighton, Michigan, comes specialty what specialty care is today, which is like it or leave it, the largest single perfusion service contract <clears throat> company internationally. So those are the people. I think Mike Carew's recent or Mark Carew's recently died too. I think he did. Yeah, he died. Yeah. And Mark was a nice guy. I like Mark. So. Anyway, here's what some of our heart-lung machine apparatus looked like. On the bottom right is the Shiley S100A oxygenator. I use that oxygenator better many, many times. This happens to be not Jesus, the specific one, but I trained on this pump. Not this specific one, but basically the exact model of it. And that oxygenator. That, this is that's a stainless steel sponge right here that's coated with Dow Corning anti-foam A. That is how you defoamed it. And it's an arterial reservoir, obviously. So and you used a gas dispersion uh uh uh, uh thing here, which is uh basically from a it's a it's an aerator from an aquarium, if you really want to know what it is. This is very similar to the way that you trained when you were in school. A year ago, three years ago, whatever yeah. it may have been. But look, very, very similar. But look, there's very. a Seacrest blender. <laughs> no, we still they, use it. Look, we had this conversation the other day in the OR. I said to Barbara, "Do you know how long these people have been driving revenue and margin? I mean, forever. Yes. I mean, it's been the gold standard, at least since this slide. Forever, forever. Yes, this is an old slide. Look at that floor." I'm just saying. <laughs> an old look, trust at the, me. look at the pump. <laughs> this is an old slide. Yes, that was that pump. That pump. You know what? It's big. The, you know what the big problem with that pump was? What? It's a great pump, but that pump. Um, well, it's a Sarns pump, uh -huh. um, and I can't remember the Sarns 5000. I think maybe it's 5000. I can't remember. But if one pump head messed up, mm -hmm. you would have runaway pump heads. <laughs> and I actually had it happen where the pumps all went into high-speed turning all at the same time. Thank God we were not on pump. But it shut our program down, and they had, Sarns had to come in, like, fly overnight to get there. Because the early, very early days, was, I was in training. It was 1978, I think, when this happened, or 77 or 79. One of those days. One of those da dates. But uh, you would get a runaway pump head. This is what the pumps look like today. Yeah. Vastly different. Now, this one here on the left, the one on the left, they did end of life. 
And on some of them, Jesus they are Christ. sending they are sending the Terumo system one. I just found out today that Terumo has sent letters to people, certain people that have certain models of this, that they are not to use. If they want to use the pump, they have to give the patient a letter that they have to sign that it has been end of life by uh, Terumo. And so that's causing some problems right now in the market, as you can well imagine. And to the right is the, uh, the Levanova S5 that we use. We have many of them, and I think it's, an, it's a very elegant uh, device, and uh, we're very pleased with it. It's, uh, it's been a uh, very reliable and uh, very uh, uh, suitable device for doing heart surgery. Of course, our oxygenators have changed tremendously from the uh, one that you saw a moment ago, the Shiley S100A. I remember doing a case one time with a uh, Harvey uh, H1000, the H1000 that had the elliptical heat exchanger because that would improve our heat, our heat exchange capabilities. So the heat exchange tubes were ellipticals, bubble oxygenator, right? And uh, anyway, the perfusionist, because our, our, if we go back to this pump, go back to this pump, you can't see it, but there's a big, giant, 100-watt spotlight, just a light bulb in a gray cone that's on the left side there. You just can't see it. But they pushed it and rested it up against the Harvey oxygenator reservoir and burned a giant hole in it. And they were like, what do we do? What do we do? And I said, well, I, I, I wouldn't turn the flow down. <laughs> it's all going to spill out. I, what do you do? Keep the level where it's at and finish the case. I mean, I'm not gonna, I don't think changing it makes sense right now. Yeah. That's what I would do. So that's what we did. Got you know, through the, the case. You know, the beauty of that, the, the, the thing that's beautiful about that story is that today, right, there's a policy, a procedure, an SOP, mm. or w whatever it might be for almost whatever situation presents itself. At the time, it was, what does my gut tell me is, is going to help this patient get off the table? Mm -hmm. yeah. not, not what may be politically correct, what might be clinically correct, but it's going to help me get this patient off the table. Mm -hmm. And there's a piece of that, in my opinion, that is innate to a young profession. And we've, we, we feel like, those of us that have been around for a number of decades, we feel like we've moved past that. Mm -hmm. And what I would implore people that are viewing your 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 show is to understand that the fact is is that to the extent that you can continue to innovate and that you can continue to think outside the box and not just be mandated or predetermined to follow this narrowly extremely yeah. narrowly defined pathway is going to do a couple of things one it's going to make you feel as if you made a difference. But more importantly, it's going to help the outcome of patients going forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you remember earlier, you may, have been, you may have been busy at the moment, but you remember my earlier slide 
that went through the list of things that you look for in a perfusionist. Mm -hmm. And basically it comes down to don't panic and you have to, it's like the Marines, okay? Yeah. I'm not a Marine, but the Marine uh, mantra is adapt, overcome, conquer. That's it. Adapt, overcome, and conquer. You, you, can't, you don't have time for polite hand-wringing when it's all going wrong. you got to figure it out. And not to belabor the point, you know, but we'll have to talk about this another day. I gave a talk not terribly long ago. I should give it again. And the title of the talk is The Four Times I Tried to Kill the Patient. Now, oh, by the grace of God, I never did. But, man, I've come pretty close. And F. Michael Burgess, I don't know. He, I give him credit for this saying. I don't know if it's really him who said it or not, but I've given him credit for it over the years. When it comes to pumping air, mm -hmm. it's not a question of if. It's when. a question of when. That's right. Yeah. And that's all there is to it. 100%. But things have changed quite a bit. I don't think that's entirely true anymore. I've made it so far, and God knows I don't ever want to have an incident. But I'll tell you what, I've come close. I've had four four cases that'll, that, that, that are indelibly impregnated into my memory where I just absolutely, I mean, you would think I just didn't like this patient. Mm -hmm. Anyway, moving forward. This is what operating used to look like. And this is actually Dr. Lily High's operating room. He is actually in there operating. Now, Bill, you'll like this picture because you were probably in it. <laughs> there, this is the Texas. That's not a term of endearment, by the this way. Is, this is Dr. Cooley. He's in there somewhere <laughs> operating at the Texas Heart Institute. That is how the operating rooms used to look. 100%. It was I, such the, a big deal. People from all over the world wanting to get a glimpse of what they were doing. It was incredible. This is how it used to be. So think about this for a second. Uh -huh. Not to diverge, but just really quickly. So one of our initial hospitals as a contract group um, you know, all of our hospitals were here in Houston, but we did uh, temporary services work around the United States. One of our hospitals was Pennsylvania Hospital. Oh, yes, I'm very familiar the with very, Pennsylvania Hospital. The very first hospital in the United States. And the amount of history and the amount of nostalgia is literally overwhelming. It's palpable. But, but what I, one of the things that I love the very, very most is that the operating theater, for a very defined reason called theater, was at the very top of the hospital. It had a glass arched ceiling. It had stadium seating. All of the anatomy and physiology of anything cardiopulmonary was literally chiseled out of stone and was around the stadium seating. Oh my God. So not only, so, so you had a, something, this is much more contemporary, which most people will say, how can that be contemporary? This is contemporary. The old school was you had X number of people standing at the table. You had hundreds of people in the stadium seating area. And then for a reference of and I'm making this up, but is this the superior vena cava? Is this the anominate? Is this the common carotid? I'm going to step over and I'm going to view this chiseled stone replica 
of the anatomy and physiology of the normal average human being. When we think back and, and people say, you know, we're, we're way too advanced for that. That, that. that just simply can't be true. The reality is, it is true. This is true. And as we look at our profession, and there's a lot of people out there, you may be included, who are relatively new to perfusion, who think, God, this is just, it's just such a mature market. You know, how long can I really make this my profession? We are in our infancy. In our infancy, there is so much further to go. Oh my God, I agree with that 100%. So much further. I completely to go. agree with that. We stand back and we think about how we set up the heart lung machine today, the equipment that we use today, we see these incredibly progressive uh, steps from where we started to where we are today. And a lot of people, I believe, stop at that and say, I'm not sure we can get much better. The reality is we, can't. we can get a lot better, a whole lot better. Medical knowledge, I don't know if you knew this or not, is currently at the current rate is doubling every 72 days think about that now will it plateau as processing power and these you know computer capabilities start to plateau they are starting to plateau will that plateau also i don't know but even if it's slowed down to every 100 days, it's amazing at what we continue to learn. Yeah. I mean, think about it. We could take, we could take a, a, co a coronavirus, a common cold virus, and break it down to know whether it's, whether it's alpha, gamma, delta, omicron, whatever it is, and do it in just a matter of just hours, really, of getting the sample. It's just yeah. amazing at what we can do. So... To make this fun, and to your point, here is the operating room of today. This is what heart surgery looks like now. Yeah. And what I want you to pay attention to, this is so incredible. Actually, there's two things I want, to pay, I want you to pay attention to. He's on the wrong but, side of the pump. Huh? He's on the wrong side of the pump. That's number one. No, he's not. Not for them. <laughs> no. But this is so important. I want you to look and see he's got a tubing clamp in his hand mm -hmm. he's well, not just on the wrong side of the pump but he's using really bad he's using a terrible pump but with, <laughs> he's got the wrong he's got a tubing clamp in his hand he's got his hand on the controls mm. he's clearly laser focused on something okay not his level not as level, but, but on, it doesn't matter. On the pump. It doesn't yeah. matter. Let, let me get through this now because you got to get to the, I got to tell you what you, you're going to miss. You're going to miss it if you don't pay attention. Okay. So laser focused, clamp in hand, hand touching the controls in, 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 in such a delicate way. You got the surgeon here. He's looking in the field doing his thing. You've got the scrub nurse here. She's waiting to hand the next instrument. And then par for the course, there's anesthesia. And he's standing there looking, thinking to himself, what the hell is he doing over there? Because they never know what we're doing. I thought that was the best part of this. The other thing I want to ask is, they call this a quadrangle. Uh -huh. But if you turn it just a little bit, 
about 45 degrees, you end up with a square, okay? Uh-huh. Now, I'm going to challenge both of you. Uh-huh. How many people at this table can name me one thing in the human body that propels or carries blood that's square? Zero. 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 Why would you use an oxygenator that's square? It's not good. Higher chances of clotting. Higher chances of clotting, I agree with that. So the reality is you're asking why it would be used. As I know a, why it's square. As opposed to why did they use. The reason it was used is because from an economic perspective, it's cheaper. this was the most efficient, cost-effective, highest margin design design to mass produce now i'm not suggesting i never use this oxygenator full disclosure but but the reality is your point is very very valid but it's also an illustration of some of the things that we do today having now just kind of started to begin to come back into this clinical environment where not everything and I'm going to be very altruistic for the moment. Everything when I trained and everything that I believed for the last 36-ish years is that what we're doing is in the best interest of that human being lying on the table. And the reality is, is that that's not always 100% the case. And so when your gut tells you that, right as as young perfusionists might be watching this podcast or, or you as a young perfusionist challenge that challenge that it may not be challenged that with your cardiac surgeon or your anesthesiologist or the administrator of your hospital but it might be with your vendor it might be with your contemporaries to say is this really the best way is is there not something that might make more sense? Back in the day, and I know you know this, I know you know this, but did we not all grow up early on, us old guys, with the feeling that every single thing we did was in the best interest of that patient? Oh, absolutely. No question about it. And today... There was nobody in cardiac surgery that was doing it for the money. No, nobody. Well, not, nobody. But, but, well, number one, there wasn't any money. No, the money... There wasn't the, any reimbursement. The money was So there horrible. was no... Exactly. Well, no. In cardiac... No, there was reimbursement. If you knew Free how to... If you knew, If you knew how to bill... There was. I you're talking about you. perfusion, or you're talking about I'm talking cardiac about surgery? The total, I'm talking about the totality. Perfusion's of the, never really I, been an independently. I'm talking service. about the totality of the procedure. If you mm. knew how to bill early on, I agree with you. There was money in the procedure, but how? How many people know how to bill today? Much less you have knew how to bill then. Oh, companies, billion-dollar companies that try to figure that out. Hospitals that have to have whole departments of coders. It's 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 they've made it nearly impossible to do this. Okay, so let me let's we got some good discussions we're gonna have. So I know this may upset some people. We have sound. Is it gonna upset us? No. Okay. So much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. 
Believe me. I agree. You'll never get bored with winning. We never get bored. Huh? Right. Trump. We need it's Trump. Oh. We need to <laughs> win as an industry. So so let's talk about some no. new was that not telling? Yeah. She goes, Oh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Were you able to vote at the time when he got elected? You... I don't remember. I think I was here. I don't know. No, 2016? Oh, yeah, I did vote. You did vote? Yeah. Did you vote for Trump? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> don't ever admit that again. Just say you didn't vote. So, <laughs> moving, moving, moving on. Moving on. So, there's all kinds of things. I have some lists here. You guys here. are I'm Trump gonna... supporters? We don't talk about it anymore. That's it. Um, that and ECMO, I want to talk about that a little bit. No more talking. Perfusion, nursing, respiratory care, PBMTs are watching perfusion, um, which I find very interesting. Um, I think ec appropriately trained nurse ECMO specialists. I'm not really, I've never been supportive of respiratory ECMO specialists and certainly not PBMTs um, who have no real training um, in my view. But I do think that perfusion, I think that the reality of ECMO is we're going to have to evolve into nurse ECMO specialist programs with perfusion blended uh, kind of helping with initiation, unstable patients, troubleshooting, change outs, that kind of thing. Um, just because we have the experience, I think, as an industry. Uh, perfusion is a very high resource utilization, and it is a, or ECMO is rather, very high resource utilization, and uh, it is, however, a revenue source, but it's limited because you have caps. So a five-day ECMO makes the hospital a lot of money. A 90-day ECMO loses the hospital a lot of money, and those are realities. Uh, questions remain as to whether it should only be a perfusion responsibility, but it does count towards your ABCP cases. So a six-hour ECMO run or a, an ECMO initiation is considered a case by the ABCP. I thought that was important. Um, this has to do Jesus. with ECMO growth. I really don't want to spend some time belaboring this. I'm going to kind of go through this a little quicker. There's angiovac procedure. I think it's a, a, a very nice operation for removing unwanted yes. intravascular uh, material, and it also is uh, counted as a uh, procedure by the ABCP because it's essentially VV ECMO or VVV uh, perfusion with a filter in the middle of it to suck this unwanted intravascular material out. Uh, CVVH, I think that as perfusionists, we should understand much more about it than we do. It's also called CRRT, but then there's also MARS, which is Molecular Adsorption Recirculation system and therapeutic plasma exchange. All of these can be done extracorporeally, and I think that as an industry, we should be looking more into this. As clinicians, we should be considering more understanding these therapeutic modalities because I think our generalized um, experience leads us to be very, very good when it comes to moving blood in and out of the body and doing something with it. Um, this is a CRRT machine operating. We don't have to take any time with that. Transplants, uh, and that's that. There's a sticking point. We can resolution become extinct. Okay. If anybody at this table or anybody there that can answer this question with an out online, you can't go looking them up. Okay. So who is this? That was you 37 years ago. May have been. Who is this? Is it you? 
<laughs> I don't know. Okay. The power of positive. Notwithstanding your voting <laughs> proclivities, you're rehired. Okay, because you were gone. You were out just a minute ago. Okay. So I'm going to rehire you now. Okay, good. That was a good one. No. So I'm going to close with just a very quick video. This is when we need sound. Do you have a team picture of you? I'll tell you the story here. Air Force balloonist Captain Joseph Kittinger Jr. is laced into an elaborate pressure suit in preparation for a daring ascent into the stratosphere. Kittinger, who weighs 150 pounds, packs 155 pounds of suit and equipment. Let me, let me. Can you let me know when we get the sound? Okay. Okay. The scientific goals of Kittinger's ascent are to test a new six-foot stabilizer parachute designed to keep an ultra-high altitude jumper from spinning and blacking out before he can open the main chute. The balloon reaches a height of 19 and a half miles. Disconnect the oxygen hose. Release seatbelt. There's a checklist. Attaboy. All right, stand up on the exterior step. Keep your head down, and our guardian angel will take care of you. A helmet tie-down strap. Imagine if he did, if he if he hadn't done that.
Think he's high up? Here and breathing. That's a city thing for me to That's the world. earlier about courage and we talked about these surgeons and other surgeons that say man that 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 was such a courageous operation I told you it's the patient that's courageous okay we do stuff and we think to ourselves how bold we all are this this is bold Let's see if you get a respiratory count this is courageous speed 536 he ends up exceeding the speed of sound. He gets into a spin. He starts losing consciousness. Because the atmosphere is so thin. Yeah, now a speed. Look at airspeed now. 800 miles per hour. Damn it, you calling me? Just the fact that he can articulate anything is remarkable. Yes. It truly is remarkable. Yes. One minute. One minute, free fall. I have been following speed for a long time. Sounds like I have to pass out. See how it's now, dropping. Now, a, long time, is, dropping? a long time has been 10 minutes. I mean, 10 seconds. A long time is 10 seconds. But then he gets into thicker atmosphere. And he stabilizes. Stable descent. One minute and thirty seconds. And stable as a rock. He looked at his altimeter. ego <laughs> okay there's my talk i hope it was fun bill thoughts 
You got to speak up, though. They kept telling me I was getting text messages that you talk too low. That I talk too low? Yes. Yeah, you're very I've, soft. I've, learned, I've heard my entire life that I'm too loud. But I love you for saying that. Look at this is a um, this is an amazing forum, and I, I could care less about uh, I could care less about the marketing aspect of this. Could care less about how many people are viewing this and saying, "Well, th these guys are just self-promoting." If that's their perspective, that's their perspective. But the opportunity to take a look back and and talk about not just the actual history, but some of these specific stories, I think it's pretty unique. Yeah. You know, I've been doing this a long, long time in a variety of different capacities, and I've, I've never had an opportunity to do this. And I, I want to appreciate it, but much more importantly than appreciating it, I think it brings value. And it brings value, maybe not so much, even though it does for you and I, but for you yeah. and your contemporaries, I, I think it brings a tremendous amount. Because at the end of the day, having been on staff at Texas Heart, having trained here, having instructed here, the reality is there's simply not enough time in the day to talk about the true, the true history. Yeah. Oh, it's of amazing. Perfusion technology. It's amazing. It's amazing. And when you Bill Stoney's book does a pretty doggone good job. And that's great if But it's a book. If the students have the opportunity to read the book. But what, whoa, what whoa, this provides no, every but, student but, but, but has what, the opportunity to read the book. I understand. You know, I'll tell Do you, they take I, the I, time I, to read no, the book? No, I'm gonna tell you a true story. I'm tell gonna me. tell you a true story. Tell me. And this really made me angry. I went to a, uh, I, uh, there was a, a person, a perfusionist, who was having some issues, nothing major, good perfusionist, really good perfusionist, great perfusionist, but it's more personality. Um, and the surgeon uh, by, uh, was complaining, and I talked to them and said, let's, let's just meet out for coffee. So we went out to have coffee, you know, just maybe if we got to know each other, you know, that would put everything in perspective. And... Uh, the surgeon and I were talking, and we were laughing about, we were telling Charlie Reed stories, and uh, they knew Charlie, and we're going back and forth with all this stuff, and the other perfusionist was there and kind of laughing along a little bit, and we finished the, the thing up, and we left. Now, this was a very competent perfusionist. She was, ex she was really a good, she still is. Um, thought the world of her. But we're leaving, and we're walking back to my car, and she says, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. Who's Charlie Reed? And I said, what? Yeah, who, I don't know who Charlie Reed is. I said, where did you graduate? Texas Heart. How in the heck do you not know who Charlie Reed is? That he was the, the founder of the school you went to. And I find that, unfortunately, more and more. Every student, every person on this planet has every opportunity to learn whatever they want. If they want to be inquisitive, if they want to put the effort into it, if they want to take the knocks as you're learning and not being afraid to ask the proverbial stupid question or whatever it is, 
be inquisitive. And that translates into when you're in the operating room. Are you going to just be here by the pump and have no idea what the hell they're doing up there? I can look up there and see they have a thin, a thin blue nylon stitch. That's a distal. I know exactly what it's going to be. It's a 7-0. I, can say, I know exactly where they are in that operation how they hold their arm, how they hold their elbow. They got a clamp in their hand. They have whatever they have. I know what we're doing before they do it by what is being handed to them or what they themselves are doing. But you don't know that if you never get up and go watch the case. Just because you're not scheduled for a case that day, go watch cases and watch the surgery and learn what's going on. That's how you make yourself better. Everybody went to the same training. Everybody can maybe run the pump. But if you truly don't understand the, and I'll, I, I, to, use a, to use a 25 cent word, if you don't understand the milieu of what's happening in the entire operating room, then you're, you're, you're selling yourself and the patient's short. You don't yeah. know. It's a, it's a professional development that is your responsibility, no one else's. Really simply put, do you want to be one of a few or do you want to be one of many? Many sit behind the pump. They operate the heart-lung machine in a very safe and typically competent way. Okay? Mm-hmm. The few come in. They understand what the elbows doing this mean. They understand the color of the suture being blue. They understand that that's a 7-0 and he's doing a distal. They understand the instruments that are being asked for because they've taken the time to do the things that you've just described. Unfortunately, good, bad, right, or wrong, not self-appreciating for us, but good, bad, right, or wrong, that's not, that's not the premise under which most programs operate today. Yeah. And the reality is mm-hmm. you want to differentiate yourselves. We want to differentiate ourselves as being professionals and perfusion being a true craft and an art and a contributory to patient outcomes. That's a differentiator. That's what makes a difference. Absolutely. I totally agree. So Bill and I have some questions for you. A myriad of questions. Myriad, yes. That's another 25-cent word. I'm going to, I'm going to let Bill um, lead this off. So, Bill, the floor is yours. Happy to have it. You can ask. You can make a comment. You can ask Ramsha a question. You can ask me a question. And I have questions for you. And Perfect. I have questions for Ramsha also. Perfect. The first question is, why is my coffee cup empty? <laughs> okay. I'm just, I, if he's over there, I'm just giving you a hard time. So, <clears throat> I, I, I think. I, but I can answer the question. I think. No, I know you can because I drank it all. Yes. Yes, thank you so much. I've known you for a long time. And we won't talk about landing on the island and going up the thing. We're not going to do that. But, you know, you train for. X number of months, Mm -hmm. you did X number of cases, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You've now been out for X period of time Mm -hmm. and done the requisite X number of cases. 
So when you see things from the perspective that you now see them as a certified or certified eligible, because I don't know where you are. In She's your certifi certified. I'm certified. Certified. Congratulations. Thank That's you. a big deal. So now that you see things from a certified perfusionist perspective, how much does that differentiate in terms of how you view your role? Not the outcome of the patient, not how anesthesia functions, not how the surgeon functions, how you function, how you view your contribution to that patient's outcome. How does that differ from not maybe the first day that you sat down as a junior or whatever the terminology was at your training program, but the first day that you sat down as I'm, I've got some level of responsibility for running the heart-lung machine compared to today. What's, what's that experience like? So when I first um, did my first case in Chicago with my first rotation, I had perfusionists there, very experienced. I was confident, but I wasn't confident enough. At that time, I just got out of my actual didactic period, and uh, I was like, okay, I'm ready. From simulations, I was like, okay, I'm ready. But when I actually got in and I did my first case, I was like, this is a big responsibility. It's not just about running a case. It's just not about, you know, trying to pump the pump, you know, pump. It's about knowing your patient, too. It's about saving that patient. So at that point, I realized it's a big responsibility. When I went to, I think, my second, because my first rotation was not a good experience for me. It was the time where, you know, someone told you that perfusion is not for you and you should not, you're never going to become one. That's what happened to me, too. And I was actually... Was there a shoeshine kid involved or no? No. If there would have been, how, how, how ironic would that have been? <laughs> no. no, I appreciate you sharing that. Go on. No, I'm sorry. It was the time where um, by the end of it, I was pretty shattered. I had instructors tell me, you need to think about leaving. And at that time, I was like, I can't. My second rotation was where, you know, they helped me. And I was shattered student. I was probably the worst student they have had. But I knew I wanted to do it. Big passion. I spent it day and night. I didn't care about sleeping. I didn't care about anything. I was like, I'm going to do it. And I was like, I know that's a big responsibility because we play a major role in saving that patient. Definitely surgeon has its own role. Perfusionist has its own. I mean, by an anesthesia has its own role. But at one point, we take a lot of that on us. Just remember, Ramsha, so they can't do it without us. Yeah, they, they can't. can try. They can try, but they can't. So, so take, not to interrupt you, but take, so would you be the same perfusionist today had you not had that initial challenge where it was just somebody being negative or you not having the most positive of experiences? Would you be the same perfusionist today, do you think? Or did that play a sentinel role and that become, you know, what is sometimes like a watershed moment for you, right? I'm either going to sink or I'm going to swim, but my desire, my passion is to swim. I would say that was a big turning point in my life. 
it really shaped me for who I am today. It gave me a lot of confidence. It made me that fearless person that I need to be. It gave that capability of being thoughtful, thinking quick, and becoming very mighty and feisty when I need to be. Taking that responsibility when I need to. And I think me and Joe, we had a talk um, about like being assertive. I wasn't an assertive person. I was a very quiet person. And I let people walk all over me in that OR room. I remember my first rotation clearly. But my second rotation and my third rotation, I think it was my actual third rotation that gave me so much confidence that just, I remember just steeping up. I didn't have a like exponential, like just a you know slight slope. It was an exponential growth. And uh, his name, I'm gonna mention it was Jeff Chores. Amazing perfusionist. Shout amazing, out to Jeff. Amazing mentor. Um, I still am in contact with him, and he really helped me. It was just one thing that he showed me. He gave me his confidence. He showed confidence in me, and I gave it to him. And I remember my second rotation did the same thing. They pushed me to that pump. They were like, you're going to do it. And, but I remember my first case at my second rotation, I was so scared. I was like, I'm not touching that pump. I am not confident. I need to do more simulation, whatever it takes. I was even to the point, I was in Wisconsin. I was like, if I have to drive back and forth from Wisconsin to Rush University just to do simulations, I will. But I need to get my confidence up. But they were like, no, you are going to get your confidence here. And it was TJ at that place, the chief there. And he just threw me in and he was like, you are going to do it. And that really gave me that confidence too. And Don't you love people like that that do that? Don't you love not... people that, 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 that take somebody like her after that horrible experience, like Ramsha, after that horrible experience? And I know more of the details of it. Um, but to take somebody who whether it be you with Charlie and the, and the shoebox or whether it be uh, her experience and the tenacity, the determination, the, the, the absolute failure is not an option. And I don't care what you say to me, I am going to be successful. And, and, the, and the commitment of been. that individual, the commitment and the risk that that individual takes, I think that's incredible. But what I think supersedes that is a theme that, unfortunately, in my opinion, is lost a little bit today in, in the environment in which we work. And that is, you've got to be part of a team. Yeah. You're not, the concept of going in and saying, I'm mm -mm. going to save this. I'm going to mm -hmm. make a difference. It's we. I'm going to contribute. Yeah, it's we. But the collective we are going to make a difference yeah. in this human being's life. That's somebody's mom, somebody's dad, yeah. brother, sister, husband, wife, child, whatever it might be. But too often, in my opinion, it is, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And so whoever that individual was, who I don't know, that took that initiative to say, you're going to do this. And it may not be comfortable. It may be really yeah. uncomfortable. But I'm going to push you, and I'm going to push... Because he clearly saw something that was worthy of the investment, right? Yeah. And look at 
Look at the look at the payoff. And I'm not talking about payoff monetarily. That's com- way down the line. Just the payoff from a professional satisfaction perspective is enormous. Yeah. I think that's a great story. And I will it's say a great story. That experience humbled me, and I will say I will never do that with any student. And as you said, it's a weak thing. Just and remember that, that when you get students. I will. Because one day you probably will be in that role. I and will. just remember it. But it has to be after I'm dead because you can't leave unless we <laughs> take students. So until I'm dead, you can still hear. Um, okay, so Ramsh, I, I think Bill's going to have this question for you too, so you may as well just ask her, ask her, ask, answer both of us. There are several options for perfusionists in the market. You can go to work for a hospital. Mm-hmm. You can go to work for a surgeon group, surgeon-owned group that run. That's not uncommon. Less common today, but still not, un- not that uncommon. You could go to work for a large corporation. You can go to work for a small uh, private group. You could go to work for uh, yourself and be independent. So there's a host of options for any perfusionist that uh, is young in the field. What made you decide to take this job? Who doesn't want to work with you, Joe, first of all? Very good, good answer, good answer. I didn't hear the answer. You have to speak up, I was just told that I'm like a mute. The answer was, who doesn't want to work for you? Oh my God, oh my God. Do you feel the sucking coming in the room? You know what, Ray's, Ray's, you know what? You're getting his raise. If he was going to get a raise, you're getting his. So, <laughs> you're getting double raise. So, yeah. So, you get a cut. Okay, so, I'm anyway, used to that. With that said, with that said, no, seriously, what what made you decide? Like, what are the things you thought about in terms of, you know, you go to work for a hospital. I mean, Bill, you can maybe articulate a little of this, too, but just very briefly, uh, Ramsha, for the sake of this, this discussion, you go to work for a hospital, sometimes you're a little more protected mm-hmm. because you're in a department. There's always somebody around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different environment, but it is an environment that exists and is good for some people. Uh, you have the big corporations, which are, you know, can be impersonal, but, you know, they, they have advantages, too, in smaller groups. Uh, you know, like us. What 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 thoughts did you have? What recommendations do you have for people who are trying to figure out what they want to do? For me, it was more about challenging myself because I was going to any hospital that I was going to. They were like, apart from the first one, they were just like hospital employed. They will only go to one or two hospitals, and that's it. But I wanted to go where your like our group goes to so many hospitals. Mm-hmm. Seven, yeah, nine, nine we, of them, I think. Yeah, we go to seven. I think ours is just seven mm-hmm. right now on the north side. Yeah, yeah, seven. So I wanted to give myself that, um, like, I wanted to challenge myself mm-hmm. at that point because I was constantly told I can't do this. I need to do a shorter, um, a smaller hospital, a smaller group. But I was like, no, I gotta challenge myself because from here I just want to expand. And then another thing that I was looking at when I was hiring on was a team. I wanted a good team mm-hmm. because 
team is the one that will take you further on. If they're not willing to teach you and they're willing to just let you scatter off, mm -hmm. then sink you, or swim. Yeah. Right. Our goal, the, you know, I mean, that's something that's very important to me. And I assume you noticed it is when we, when we uh, allow a person really is what it comes down to, to join our team. Um, because I don't really, it's, it's very strange. You all are colleagues. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this employee, employer differentiation and all this kind of stuff. But really, at the end of the day, I'm a perfusionist. I practice. I actually work. I'm going to watch ECMO after this, case, after this program is over. Um, so I actually work. I even pump cases. Yeah. Um, so I view everyone as a, I view as a colleague. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, you work technically for me, I guess. It's technicality. But I don't ever view it that way. Um, I still feel a part of that team. And uh, so that is important. I think you're, you have good points. Bill, I have a question for you. And uh, it's a challenging question, though. Um, and so I'm going to, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully you, can, you can give as much information as you, as you feel comfortable giving. But hospitals, along with employees, people, you know, I think that understanding, notwithstanding, that people have to do what's, in, what's most comfortable for them. And sometimes a hospital is more comfortable. Uh, a big group is more comfortable because they think they maybe add some protection for their job security. I'm not really sure the reasons why people do that. But hospitals, too, have choices. Hospitals around the country choose to be in-house. They choose to have small groups that have been with that particular hospital, and that's where they are. That's what they do. They're just private but in that one hospital so they're almost like they still work there but they don't they're private um hospitals can choose a big corporation like specialty care um hospitals can choose smaller private practice groups like ours and uh you know they can also supplement with travelers uh or they can hire enough ftes that they don't have that as a paradigm being that perfusion and many people in uh, the U.S. may not realize this. In Europe, I think it's different. In Canada, it's going to be very different. Um, but in the U.S., you know, we have capitated care. Hospitals, we, perfusion is by and large a cost, an expense to the hospital, a necessary expense, but an expense nonetheless, not directly billable or reimbursable. It falls under the DRG of the cabbage or the valve or whatever the procedure may be. How do hospitals decide which direction to go? So there's... Um, and there if I made any mistakes in my teeing that up, don't hesitate to correct me because I you, only know you, so much. You know how long I've known you, and you know I will not hesitate. So, no, I think you asked the question correctly. Look, at the end of the day, let's, just, let's, let's give some scope and size to this for just a second. Let's say for the sake of argument, in the United States, there's between 4,000 and 4,200 perfusionists, roughly, plus or minus, right? And there's X number of hospitals that do cardiac surgery that requires cardiopulmonary bypass. 
we could argue that there are... There's 1,150 plus or minus. And we could argue that out of that 1,150 plus or minus, 1,157 plus or minus, um, that there are probably a number of those that from a volume and a proficiency perspective may put their efforts in a, in a more desirable and a better outcome um, way, focus, right? But for those that choose to do perfusion, and when it comes down to the question that you posed, which is how do they ultimately make the decision, I think two things stick out in my mind. And, and I predicate this, just a little bit of a backdrop, I predicate this based upon, at the time I was part of a larger organization, and I had the opportunity to run our operations, I had the opportunity to run our sales and marketing, um, you know, at that point in time, the group I was with had 500 plus hospitals. We were doing 140,000 procedures a year. Um, I was traveling literally from San Juan to Honolulu. So I was seeing a vast array of not just individual perfusionists and or programs, but administration and what their thought process was. So two things stick out in my mind to try and get to your point, and I apologize for dragging this on first and foremost one of the very basic basic things that we all do as human beings we revert to what we know we revert to what we are comfortable with and if i trained as a vp or a coo or a ceo where this was my model i'm going to revert to that more times than not I may have a definable reason for it, but the reality is is that it's what I'm comfortable with. Yes, there's a saying, we find comfort in familiarity. We find comfort in familiarity. I think that that's a big piece of it. I think the secondary piece that plays a large role is understanding that while you may relinquish some level of what is perceived as control by having an FTE as opposed to outsourcing. What you gain, what you gain is you eliminate a lot of the concern, the headache, the stress, the strain over what in God's name am I going to do as being responsible for the totality of this hospital and every life in it, if a COVID or another like kind pandemic comes around, as opposed to being able to turn to a contracted and much more importantly, hopefully a trusted partner to help me get through this. Mm -hmm. Because there's no way I can recruit the resources. I don't even know where to look. My HR department doesn't know where to look. My COO doesn't know where to look. And certainly as the CEO or CFO or whatever role you're playing in, you don't know where to look. So to be able to, to turn to somebody that hopefully you've built a relationship with, to be able to help you get through what can be an incredibly trying time. And I'm not playing off of COVID. There were many examples before COVID. COVID just happens to be the most contemporary piece. H1N1 was bad. But the bottom but line. COVID was the worst. But the bottom line, in any, both, or all of the above, they all required the same thing. 
how are we going to how are we going to marshal the resources that are going to be necessary to take care of our patients to make sure that our doors stay open to make sure that our beds are available and available doesn't mean we've got enough beds available means i'm getting a patient treated into the bed out of the bed discharged and home so that bed is now available for someone else mm -hmm. so i don't look at this i understand the economics inside and out and i can we can do a, an entire show of what the PL, the balance sheet cash flow all of the rest of it look like i've done it for a long long time but when it comes right down to it and we're talking about what truly truly matters I think those are probably the two pieces. What am I familiar with? What, what worked where I came from? Because let's take a huge assumption, but let's just make the assumption that I respected for the, the person that I trained under, right? Mm -hmm. I respected the person that brought me up in the organization. If that's true, then you take that piece, which is the experiential piece, you take the other piece with, what am I going to do to marshal resources in a time of need? Because what's the first thing they teach you in combat? I, I, I did not serve, but everyone that I know that served thinks about one thing and one thing always first and foremost. Not what am I going to do on a nice sunny day when everything's going smooth and I've got the day off or whatever the terminology. I'm going to think about what am I going to do when I'm in battle? And when I'm perhaps out of ammunition or I'm in a situation where I've got fellow combat that, that are down, what am I going to do? So, you, so I think these administrators think about what am I going to do in a time of crisis and mm -hmm. how am I going to deal with that? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, so is that a big, do you view that as a big piece of the decision making of an administrator when they're weighing their options of, crisis management uh, is, you know, a big part of their decision-making versus cost, versus reputation, versus, um, uh, you know, past reliability or dependability? How much, I think those are, that's probably pretty high, but what do you think about the other two things that I just mentioned? Look, at the end of the day, all of these individuals, male, female, doesn't make any difference. Tenured, five years in the job, 35 years in the job, doesn't make any difference. You no longer have what we grew up with, which was you've got about a 10-year runway to start making your numbers. That's no longer the case. You might have a 12-month runway to make your numbers. And if you don't make your numbers, guess what? There's 15 other qualified people behind you that are going to take your job. Okay, so do I think it's a big deal in the mind of the decision maker? I think the big deal is in what's in your mind. How are you going to articulate your value proposition to that individual hospital, administrator, or group of decision makers? If you know how to articulate that properly, and I'm not saying properly because it fits a mold. I'm saying properly because it's the truth. I think your chances of securing that account and helping to further their mission goes up exponentially. Mm -hmm. But you have to know their mission 
in order to be able to further their mission. You because have to know their mission. Although you have, everyone has common missions, hospitals have different missions. They do have different missions, but, but the expectation should be, um, what's a silly example? Um, you're going to take a girl out for the very first time, or you're going to go out on a date with a boy for the very first time, right? You're going to talk to your friends. You're going to talk to maybe the friend's parents, people that know this individual and know what's important to them. So you've got an idea in your mind. When you're talking about going in and pitching to a hospital or responding to a hospital's crisis of the day, right? understand where they came from. Understand where they are. Most importantly, understand where they and their board and their shareholders potentially expect for them to be. And when you understand those things, I think that you can craft your message and never misunderstand craft with manipulate. That's not what I mean. Craft your message is you have a very few minutes to articulate your point. Take that time wisely. Use mm -hmm. it prudently. Mm -hmm. Make sure that you're speaking the speak that helps them understand how you as an individual contract group or whatever role you're service, serving in can help them meet their objectives. Because at the end of the day, it's not about you. Not about you, not about me. It's about them, their patients, their shareholders. Whether we like it or not, that's the reality of healthcare mm -hmm. in the United States. And it's going to continue to be the reality. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you another question. Shoot. Tell me about um, individual perfusionists. So you spent a lot of time, and I realized that you weren't necessarily in the uh, human resources department or in the staffing department. You were more on the business modeling side and the, um, you know, that kind of, uh, of management within your company uh, that you worked for. But when it comes to recruiting perfusionists, when it comes to attracting limited resources, so notwithstanding that if you have a glut in the, in the market of perfusionists, it's a little bit easier, but when you have just enough or a shortage, it becomes much more challenging. From a large corporation perspective, compared to me, for example, so I can talk about my advantages, the advantages of a company like mine versus a big company, but what does a big company bring to the table that they tell people when they go to the schools and try to recruit them that they use to make themselves more attractive to the individual clinician? So I, th I, I think a couple of things come into play there, rightly or wrongly. Um, it depends upon your point of view, and I can talk to both sides of the equation, but to your specific question, large organizations offer a substantial amount of choice. And when I talk about choice, I talk, I'm, I'm talking about demographic choice, right? I, I have a propensity to want to live on the West Coast or the Midwest or the East Coast or South America, wherever it may be, typically a large organization might provide that opportunity, right? Furthermore, from a benefit perspective, their package on the surface is going to have more bullet points. And if you're a new grad or if you're somebody that's just stepping into 
a professional role, it's not so much about what the bullet points say, it's about the number that are there. Because more looks better. Not necessarily that more is better, but it looks better. So I think ability to go here, there, or the other place, I think the benefit package can play into that. I mm-hmm. think if they're a, a publicly traded entity or an entity that's in the middle of an IPO that they can d- dis- disclose, or if they're a private entity that is doing what are, what are called warrants and other mechanisms to create value for their employees, I think those things can be attractive, okay? What do I think makes a, a group like yours attractive? A couple of things. One, because you can't buy these. And there's several companies like mine. Oh, just I'm just talking globally. We're not talking about my okay. group so forget specifically. Your group. Forget your group, okay? A smaller private group. Because there's several of them out there. Doug oh, Seal, there, perfect there, example. There's a, there's a, a lot, okay? Um, a couple of things stick out in my mind. And these are earned over a tremendous amount of time. What's their reputation in their marketplace? When you go, forget the interview, all that, forget the interview with the owner or the HR person or the chief perfusionist or whatever your terminology is, or even some of the peer group, forget that. When you go and talk to the people that are in the community that have some tangential relationship with the cardiovascular program at a given hospital and they know what perfusion is and you can get unbiased, unfiltered feedback from them, you cannot put a value on that. You can't today, you couldn't before, you never will be able to going forward. That's a huge differentiator. I think the second differentiator that quite frankly might outweigh that, you're not going to be a number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, that's what I see. You're I see not that too. Going, you see that? You're yeah. not going. I'm not talking about having an employee number. I'm not talking about not being important, not doing a good job, not bringing value. I'm not saying that because I know a lot. I worked with, hired, interviewed, spent time with a number of people who have that number right and there's not anything necessarily wrong with that but i don't think that that particular model fits every single clinician Mm -hmm. i think there's some clinicians who for whatever reason right wrong or indifferent they have a desire to do something that's different Mm -hmm. and that difference can be I want to be one of, and I'm going to say a select few, which makes it sound like it's superior, and that's not my intent. Mm -hmm. A select few in that it's a smaller group. Mm -hmm. More family-oriented. It gets back to what you said a moment ago. If your team, and I'm paraphrasing, okay, but if your team had not rallied around you when you first came or the reason why you came, you may have had a very different experience, Mm -hmm. right? So... The people that want to be part of something that's a little bit different, a little bit more experiential, to use your term, they may be more drawn to that that tighter-knit, closer-knit mm-hmm. group, right? 
Not that there's anything wrong with the larger experience, but it's different. And the reality is, Joe, right, wrong, good or bad, we are all different in our own ways. Exactly. 30 seconds, where is Profusion going in the next 15 years? It's going to grow. Specifically Profusion. It's going to grow exponentially. Perfusion is going to grow exponentially, and it's going to change from what we're used to today, just like it has over the last 36 years. It's going to change substantially from where we find ourselves today as in and out of the operating room, cath lab, hybrid room, whatever it might be, as a clinician. We're going to have to have additional skill sets. We're going to have to bring additional value and knowledge. And I think, I think that if we do this correctly, correctly, we're going to play a larger role in the outcome of a number of patients' lives. Mm -hmm. I have one last question. That's good. I like that. I feel the same way. I think Perfusion is here to stay for a very long time. It's going to outlast me. One more question. Are you supportive or not supportive of the new uh, guidelines for, and not guidelines, but requirements now for perf uh, perfusion programs to be master's level? I think when it's all said and done, that's a title. That yeah. doesn't impress me. Mm -hmm. So you're unsupportive of that? I, I like to answer a question black and white because you asked a black and white question. That's not a black and white answer. I can be both black and white. Here's, here's my answer. If it's done properly, if it's done properly, there is value to a master level pro program. The unfortunate reality is that there are very few that are done properly. You could make the exact same argument. Drop the masters. Look at the number of programs that are available today. Why are those programs available today? The, the, the gross number of programs, it has nothing to do with this hospital proved its proficiency in being able to train perfusionists. It had everything to do with supply and demand. Get back to basics and you can understand what's going to come next. I feel the same way about master's programs. I feel that I'll, the way I view it, I think there should be a longer clinical experience um, uh, uh, program. I think programs should have longer clinical experience more than going to a master's program. I agree with you. That's what I think. I think you should have to do way more cases by the time you graduate. I graduated, I had done 300 cases by the I, time I graduated. I did 367 and of the 367, 121 of them were pediatric cases. Yep, that's I a lot. I only did 85. That's a lot. When I graduated. Exactly. You did 85. And you know what? 80, that's and, a huge and 85, difference. That's agreed. a huge difference. But 85, that's a big number. That's a big Comparatively number Comparatively speaking. Exactly. Today. During COVID. During COVID. Even worse. Okay. We're, we're going to wrap up with you get to spin the wheel to see what bill is going to win. Ooh. So it's time for the wheel, the Tammy Sparacino Journal Club Casino, even though we didn't do a journal club, Wheel of Fortune. 
So you can win. Wait, just calm down. Calm down. Calm that finger down. <laughs> I need to see something that has more okay. zeros than one okay. zero after it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you could win a ball cap, $10 Amazon card, a T-shirt that says Perfusion, we give your heart a rest. It's you cute. could win a PerfWeb cup. These are coveted, by the way. You could win um, a extra call, and you can win an aortic dissection. Extra call is in you get to take an extra weekend of call? Yes, you get yeah. more call. Yeah. You get more call, or you get to do an Let me just, let me just share this with you. Should it hit that, we're going to switch. Okay, or you get to... Or you get to win an aortic dissection. Okay. Okay. So, uh, we have sound. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Spin the wheel. This is big time, dude. <laughs> this is serious business now. Show me the money. <laughs> $10 Amazon gift card for Bill. All right. Real good. Okay. And congratulations. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Ramsha. I want to thank you so thank you. very much. Excellent program today. Thank we could have gone on forever. It's already 5.05. We've gone over or we'd keep talking about this. Um, I don't even think we got close to scratching the surface on any of it. It's just it's just too complex and it's too uh, it's a lot of time. But we've had a great session. Bill, I want to thank you so much. Um, your experience, um, you know, I mean, you're, I mean, people may not know this. I think, I don't know if I said it during your introduction, but you've done work with Fortune 500 companies, both in the medical industry, out of the medical industry, and have helped a tremendous number of companies. And I'm just so in incredibly privileged that you're here with us today. And I'm looking forward to a very, very, very fruitful long-term, continued long-term relationship with you as we uh, move forward with, uh, with everything that we're doing in life. Yeah, as am and I. Thank you for, looking thank forward you, to thank it. Thank you for having me. I really am looking. And I, hopefully you'll do more programs. Well, hopefully you enjoy hopefully it. Hopefully I get invited back. You I mean, after asking for all the coffees, they, they may say, we don't care what you do, but don't ask that guy back. I know. Well, I'm never. I'm. I'm. I'm hesitant. I'm only hesitant because of how how much you cried when I told you you had to do slides. No, you I don't want to do, do slides. Slides. Do, show me one slide. Who does a PowerPoint my presentation slides anymore? Were awesome. I no, no, do. no. Are you saying okay, my slides at, weren't good? No. What I'm saying is this: I don't do presentations with PowerPoint. This is so much more productive. Mm -hmm. it's I think so for much, your it's audience, so much, it's it is certainly so much. It is so, certainly so. I don't want to use I the know word. where you're going to go. <laughs> don't say it. You know I'm what? Gonna say, Here's what we'll end it with. You know are, what? What would uh, be important to yeah. me? I'm going to push it again. Hold on. I would really I'm, love I'm, to have a catheter mm. while we're doing the show. Can you share that screen? Can you show, share that screen? Oh, if you're going to make it Can land on something horrible. Screen? Oh no, you're changing it on purpose. Here. That's Turn not fair. No, I, it was a ball cap. I'm gonna keep so I got 10 it. bucks, I got a ball cap. Now you're going to spin it until I get some kind of dissection or God, another God. Amazon. See, a t-shirt, good. Legit. Okay, you want to go again? T-shirt, t-shirt, Right? You get no, the t-shirt. wait, you I get, the... get, no, I get to spin for you. No, you did just no, spin for no. her. She wants the t-shirt. No, I was spinning for you a second time. Okay, I get an Amazon card and a t-shirt. Let's just make sure we're keeping track. Okay, this is for you. Come on, extra call, come on. 
Okay, none of us. Apparently, oh, you're taking you the extra call. Okay. All right. Thank you all. We will look on the website. We are going to be um, populating all of 2022 on the website. Keep in mind, save the dates, June 23rd, 24th, and 25th at the Renaissance Pair Marquette. New Orleans for the New Orleans conference, which will be on site, the best food, the best talks, the best fun, the best everything. You know how I do conferences. They're, 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 they're always a lot of fun and they're, they're very informative, great faculty. We're going to have a great Crystal Heart Award recipient this year who I think you guys will not want to miss. Um, and of course, it'll also be aired live online so that if you can't make it to New Orleans for whatever reason, you can be a part of the New Orleans conference virtually like here. But hopefully we're going to limit it to 100 participants. So when we open registration up, do not delay because we are limiting it to 100 participants for our first conference post-COVID um, in New Orleans on in 2022, June 23rd through the 25th. I got to go watch an ECMO. We're going to grab a little bite to eat. Thank you so much for being here and joining us, being a part of our program. And we'll see you in uh, 2022. Merry Christmas to everybody. Thank you, Joe. Thank you.